Welcome to Creekside Church. If you haven't had a chance to, come on in, find a spot to sit. Before we uh, sing this uh, next song together, you know, we come here this morning, there's always a lot of uh, distractions, a lot of things that fill our minds uh, from the week before. And so we always have to kind of fight. We have to remind ourselves to fix our eyes on Jesus. So let's bow our heads. Just take a moment to ask God to help set our hearts upon him. Father, we pray that as we gather here this morning that you would remind us of who you are and what you've done. We thank you for Jesus, our King. He alone is worthy of our praise. He alone is worthy of our thanksgiving. Father, we just pray that as we gather here this morning that you would help us to worship in spirit and in truth together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courtyards. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. I'm going to ask uh, Mary Bristow to come. Mary's going to be heading out here for Haiti uh, just shortly. So Mary's going to come, and I'm going to, I'm going to pray with and for her. So she's getting ready to go, so that some of that formula stuff she's going to be using. So I just uh, invite you to uh, pray with me, if you would, for, for Mary. Father in heaven, as our sister prepares to head off to serve you in Haiti, my prayer is that your spirit would work in her and through her for your glory and for the gain of your kingdom. We pray for her physical safety and well-being. We pray that you would give her an alert mind and attentive heart to the needs of those who are there. And I pray that your spirit would work in her and through her to accomplish uh, good things for you, that, 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 that physical bodies might be healed and physical needs might be met, and that spiritual needs would be met as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank, thanks, yeah. sister. Thanks. If you have questions about Mary's... Uh, Plans you could see her after the service and appreciate you do that. I also wanted to call your attention to a couple of uh, announcements about people who are in need. Paul Hoist went to the hospital uh, early this morning, so continue to be praying for 
uh, Paul and Gail, they've got some struggles going on uh, physically. Uh, Patty Felder's mother passed away, so I'd appreciate you be praying for, for Patty and her family as they mourn the loss of her mom. And uh, Ruth Roskam, who is a regular attender of our church, she is uh, kind of recuperating at home, so she's kind of lonely. So if you wouldn't mind uh, giving her a call or if you have a chance, you want to stop by and talk to her, that'd be great. And also just uh, a note for one of our, our guys, Gene Arns. Uh, Gene Arn is 104 years old, but he's, uh, he's failing and his uh, physical condition is deteriorating and he's uh, not wanting visitors. Uh, just continue to pray for Gene and his, his uh, grandson Mike is basically pri- providing primary care for him. Um, let me just pray. Uh, Father in heaven, um, I thank you uh, that you are our great and mighty God and how great is our God. And uh, I stand here uh, very humbled by your greatness and your power and your mercy in dealing with many situations. And I come before you on behalf of those in our congregation who are hurting physically, struggling emotionally, challenged spiritually. And I pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts, Lord. Strengthen us with all might by your Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and what is the surpassing greatness of uh, of Christ, that we might know the fullness of God. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the Word of God, and you would be glorified and magnified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a teenager, my father um, got a job for me, uh, detasseling corn. Now, some of you don't know what that involves, but it is uh, hot work, it's hard work, and it's very unpleasant work because you're walking through the fields of tall corn and you're literally pulling the tassels off of the corn during the hottest days of the year and during the most humid days of the year, and it's a, it's a very difficult task. But I learned a lot of valuable life lessons during that uh, adversity, during that difficulty. And it's not unusual. In fact, it's the way it works oftentimes. Unfortunately, adversity is an infect, uh, a very effective environment in which we learn life lessons. We learn how to be strengthened physically how to be strengthened emotionally, how to be strengthened spiritually through the difficult things that we experience. It's an environment that promotes maturity. And as I think over the last few weeks, the tragic news that I just shared with you about the the immorality and the possible criminality on the part of one of our missionaries uh, and the resulting avalanche of adversity that's been cascading upon us as a church body, but also a lot of other people. I don't, I'm not trying to say we are the ones alone who are experiencing a lot of difficulty over the past couple of weeks. It's been kind of a crash course in, okay, what are the principles and practices of people who profess to know faith in Jesus when it comes to facing this kind of hostility, this kind of adversity? How are you supposed to live? How are you supposed to react? 
How are we supposed to treat other people? And so this morning, I just want to share some of what I think the God, that Lord is, is teaching me and about successfully navigating adversity and hostility. And again, I say some because there are, a lot of, there are other things that I could. And some of the stuff I've been sharing with you in these updates from the congregation, okay? So some of the stuff that I've shared before, I'm not going to repeat. Uh, some of it I may. But next week... It had been our intention to launch into a study of Romans, and I'm, uh, I'm excited about getting into that, that deep study, and scared also as well, but looking forward to it. And that's what we'll begin next week, and we, as we begin to explore the, the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, and the blessedness of the gospel as we go through the book of Romans. But this morning, the antidote for adversity. And Scripture has many things to say, but informs us of many ways that we can counteract what I've described this morning as the poison of adversity, because that's what an antidote does. It counteracts the poison. And so there are several ones that are in your bulletin. If you have an outline, you can follow along with us if you want. But the first antidote is that we see the reality of hostility towards God's people. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, uh, Jesus had a lot to say about this adversity. And I don't know if we... I'm going to turn there to John chapter 15. Oh, there it is. Okay. John 15, verses 18 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but... Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. You're not going to be exempt. So basically what he's saying here is, Jesus is saying that if the world hates you. Interestingly enough, he begins in 18, if the world hates you. He concludes verse 19 with, the world hates you. Well, who does the world hate? The First of all, what's the world? Well, the world consists of the individuals, and not only the individuals, but also the way of life that's opposed to God, to His Word, and to His people. That's the world. The individuals and the the structures and organizations that stand opposed to God. Now, the world hates you. Hates is an intense hostility towards, okay? Um... We heard in the first service that uh, a brother and sister were told they're not supposed to hate each other. They can hate what they do, but they can't, they're not supposed to hate each other. Well, the world hates not just what God's people do or what God's people say, but they hate God's people. And Jesus kind of basically laid it out in John 3, verse 19. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so when the light comes in and exposes the darkness, then the darkness pushes back against the light. Now, who are the you here? If the world hates you. Well, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 14, that uh, you are my friends. Uh, The friends for whom he laid down his life. This is verses 13, 12, and 13. These are the people the world hates, the ones for whom he laid down his life. And the hatred from the world comes on those Jesus chose out of the world. And he chose those out of the world to be his apostles. And then by extension, those who are 
believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are also the objects of the hate that comes from the world. Jesus basically said we're going to be treated like he was. How did the world treat him? They nailed him to a cross. He was there exposing the darkness, even among the most religious people. And he exposed the darkness so much that they hated him and they sent him to the cross, the sinless, perfect Son of God. Nailed to a tree. And that's what we can expect. He said it. I didn't. I mean, I'm just repeating what he said. Now, that's not what we preach often, and it's not what we like to hear. You see, uh, it comes to us in this way. You see, hostility towards us is unwanted, but it shouldn't be unexpected. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says to his disciples, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe. Not might want to be. The hostility from the world that many have tasted in the last two weeks is unwanted, <laughs> but not to be unexpected. We will be persecuted. This hostility towards Christians is escalating in the world in which we live. Now, you know, we've kind of live insulated here in the United States because we haven't really felt a lot of pushback over the last several decades. But in the last few years, it seems to be escalating. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a, there's a German couple, a couple from Germany, that moved to the United States 15 years ago. And they moved to the United States because in Germany, uh, they're a Christian couple and they wanted to homeschool their kids, and that's illegal, basically, in Germany. And so they moved to the United States, they live in Tennessee, and now the, the, the Department of State is telling them they're going to be deported back to Germany. And it's like, what? I mean, aren't there a whole bunch of other people who are doing a lot worse things than homeschooling their kids that should be, you know, could be, you know, sent back if they are sending people back? No, because they want to stand for Christ and they want to do things the right way. Their way, and I'm not, okay, I'm not saying that if you don't homeschool your kids, that's wrong. I'm just saying that's how they chose to do it, and they're standing up for for Christ, and that's, they're suffering for it. We've been comfortable, we've been safe in the United States, but now, as a church body and individually, we've, we've tasted a little more personally what this adversity, what this hostility towards Christianity uh, can mean, and it's come in lots of different forms. I'm not going to get into all the details, but it, it, it's definitely there, and we felt it. But here's the deal. God is, is good, and we need to realize that, you know, it's likely that more of this is coming. And I know we don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. I like being comfortable. <laughs> I like being safe. But Jesus said, if the world hates me, it will hate you. Secondly, uh, we see the reach through this whole thing, the reach of depravity. There's two sobering facts that emerge from the recent events, at least to me. Now, again, I'm not saying that what I'm saying here is the final word. It's the only word. I'm just sharing 
of the things that have, God has laid on my heart. And so we see the reach of depravity, two, two things that emerge. First of all, the enemy is active. Now, that should, that's not news to most of you, okay? We realize that the enemy is active. We understand that. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says that your adversary the devil, be sober spirit, be on the earth. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's particularly interested in believers. Okay? Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ because if he can take them out, then that's a, that's a trophy that he can hold up and say to the world, see, these people really are hypocrites. These people really do not have anything that you want. When Ravi Zechariah, that whole story came out with Ravi Zechariah, it was devastating to the Christian community. It's like, yeah, there you go, Satan's got another notch in his belt, you know, because he can take out somebody who was held up and esteemed by the Christian community and prove, prove, in quotation marks, the Christianity isn't really good, is not effective and fruitful. But see, the enemy's uh, number one tactic is deception. And Jesus said that when he was talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you are of your father the devil. He was a liar and the father of lies. And that's how he operates. And so he, he, he operates with deception. And that's how the enemy works. The enemy deceived Lucas, our missionary, into believing one thing. And then he deceived Lois. And as Lois was deceived, then the others of us were deceived. And many other people deceived. And now that deception has been foisted further so that people are deceived about Creekside Church. And not only Creekside Church, but some of our brothers and, and sisters in the Liberian community have been, people are, are making unjust comments and statements about them as well. It's just... Right from the enemy's playbook. I've got a, my dad was a, a high school football coach. And uh, he has, I have his playbook from uh, one, of his, one of his playbooks. You know, it's all X's and O's and arrows and stuff like this. And uh, this is the enemy's playbook. Deceive and, 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 and incite division. Second thing that we learn is that each of us is capable. If you have your Bibles or if you have a device uh, that you have a Bible app on or if you want to reach under the pew in front of you and turn to Romans chapter 3, I want to read verses uh, 10 through 12 and verse 23 because it's become very evident to me uh, that uh, we're all capable. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, now again, Paul is quoting the Psalms, Psalm 14. There's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The power of Christ 
in the life of those who have confessed with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, those who have accepted that what Christ did on the cross was the payment for their sins and they've turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone to redeem them, are delivered, freed from the penalty of sin. We're freed from the power of sin in that we're no longer slaves of sin. But we're never freed from the potential of sin. The possibility of sin. And that has become very apparent to me in this whole ordeal. It's that, but by the grace of God, there I am. The sad reality that has hit me is that every human being, even believers, are capable of the immorality, the dishonesty, the hostility, and alleged criminality in the current situation. Nothing that has happened, either in in this whole situation, nothing is outside of the realm of possibility for any one of us. We can be venomous towards other people. We We can act with immorality. We can engage in criminality. We can be evil, wicked people. And that should scare us. Apart from the power of Christ in us, we cannot resist it. But even with the power of Christ in us, we can succumb to the the, the wiles of the devil. It's sobering and humbling to acknowledge that we are weak. But there is victory in Jesus. I mean, that is the point. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. We've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that we might be raised again to walk in newness of life. That's our victory, is in Christ. But we, we, we fall. It's, and I've quoted this before. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Yehul Denuer was a witness at one of the Nazi war trials when Adolf Eichmann was to be executed. Adolf Eichmann was one of the perpetrators of the Holocaust responsible for the death of millions of, 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 of Jewish people. And at the execution, Yehul Denur saw Eichmann's eyes. And he looked in Eichmann's eyes, and this was his comment. Eichmann is in all of us. And that should scare us to be dependent upon God, to seek humility. And constantly seek God's grace and mercy in our own lives to keep us walking close to Him in dependence upon Him. Thirdly, we support the reasonableness of accountability. And one thing we've learned is isolation is dangerous as a Christian. It's a real danger to healthy Christian living. Christians are not meant to be loners. Okay, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Um, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love. 
We are all to grow up into all aspects into him who's ahead. What's the point of the speaking the truth in love? What are we supposed to speak the truth? That's the message. And what is the, the manner in which we're supposed to speak? Speak the truth in love. Okay? Why? For maturity. That's the motive. The manner is love. The motive is maturity. We speak the truth because we want to grow up in Jesus. We grow up in Christ. And then we need to realize in James chapter 5, verse 16, James says, confess your sins one to another. And as we've been walking through this whole situation with regard to what's happened here, it comes to me that it's, it's pretty easy to fool people and to fall into sin when nobody is pressing into our lives with hard questions. You know, the saying, you can fool some of the people some of the time and all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And as we look at this, we realize, I realize, the need for people to press into us with questions about our lifestyle, with about our walk with God, with whether we are serving Him with a sincere heart and a whole heart. When I was in driver's ed, I don't know why I remember this, but I remember a few crazy things from my past. When I was uh, taking driver's ed, driving in Storm Lake, Iowa, and uh, the driver's ed teacher, I went to take a left turn, and the driver's ed teacher put their foot on the brake. You know, if you've been driver's ed, they have, the, they have their own brake on the other side of the vehicle, which is a blessing for them, because uh, otherwise it might be bad. But they kept me from turning onto a one-way street going the wrong way. And that's what we're supposed to do for each other, is to help keep us from going the wrong way on a one-way street. We are to be the accountability, the encouragement, and the support for one another. Believers that show love to one another, you know. I want to do what I want to do. You want to do what you want to do. But what I want to do and what you want to do isn't always what God wants us to do. And when it isn't what God wants us to do, then we need people in our lives who will tell us, no, that's not what God wants you to do. So don't do that. And we speak the truth in love to grow up into maturity. I ask you this morning, to who, who is there in your life who asks you those questions? Who is it in your life that will ask you, are you looking at things you shouldn't be looking at? Are you going to places you shouldn't be going? Are you doing things you shouldn't be doing? What is God teaching you in your walk with God? What is God teaching you? What are the challenges you face in your life? How can I be praying for you? Who is it that we confess our sins to? That's what James says we're supposed to do. Confess your sins one to another. Well, you know, we, we had these prayers, right? God, forgive us our sins. Well, what sins? Like, okay, Lord, I had a lustful thought. I was really ticked off. I wanted to, you know, I really wanted to be physically, you know, I wanted to grab somebody and, and shake them, you know. And I realized, Lord, that's wrong. Tell you what, there's been a lot of range of emotions as we've gone through this whole thing. And uh, some of them not good. When people lie to you and they lie about you and they say things that are 
absolutely reprehensible and abhorrent and hurt your, and malign your character. And when people have physical harm done to them, I mean, it's, I mean, I, there's a lot of, from a lot of different angles, there's lots of emotions. But God calls us to have people in our lives. You see, the emotion itself is not wrong. Emotion is an emotion. It's what we do with the emotion whether it determines whether it's a sin or not. And so we need people in our lives. Uh, Proverbs, uh, Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it are the issues of life. How do we guard our heart? Well, I mean, we read this book is, is one way we guard our heart but through our own time in the Word, but also involvement with other believers who have a direct input in our spiritual lives. And we have to be willing to let people say tough things to us, things I don't want to hear. <laughs> you know, and bless my wife's heart, she's good. And, and she, uh, no, she's not the junior Holy Spirit, but she is moved by the Spirit to speak truth into my life. And I don't want to hear it, and I, but I know I need to hear it. And we need other people in us. Fourthly, we show the restraint of integrity. Uh, we've, we've witnessed firsthand, and I want to say this, we've witnessed firsthand the danger and the damage of accepting and advancing narratives that have not been corroborated. Of accepting and advancing a narrative or a statement or something somebody says that have not been corroborated. And you know what's interesting is social media is full of it. I mean, it's like you read something on social media and say, oh, oh, wow, that's horrible. That, that's terrible. And we just accept it at, at, because somebody said it. When our kids were little and going to school, I, I told them, I said, I want you to know that just because the teacher says it doesn't make it true. Just because you read it doesn't mean it's true. Just because I say it doesn't mean it's true. Look in this book. Because another person says it doesn't mean it's true. Our struggle recently emphasizes the importance that believers would follow Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love. to build up each other. And then verse 29, which says, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the edification uh, of the saints. Okay, that's my paraphrase, okay? That it builds them up, not tears them down. <laughs> got a lot of tearing down going on. Uh, not a lot of building up. We should be asking when somebody says it, is that true? Is that true? And, and, and can they find out whether it's true? I mean, James chapter 3 uh, James has a lot to say about the tongue. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. And the tongue uh, set among our body parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire, uh, fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. But no one among mankind can tame the tongue, for it is evil, it's restless evil and full of deadly poison. And you know where the tongue, what, what we say on our lips comes from? Where did that come from? What's in our heart. And Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth 
speaks. Watch our tongue. And I want to say thank you to the Creekside body because I have, for the, for the most part, I have very much experience, I think the elders would, would affirm this, have experienced your restraint in not passing along gossip, that which you have not corroborated, and you've refused to make conclusions based upon unconfirmed statements, and you have prayed for us. And for that, we thank you deeply. Because we know we need it. Fifth, we seek the response of maturity. I hope you have your Bibles. You can turn them over to Psalm 62 because this is where I wanted to camp. I don't like, uh, this is not my habit of uh, hitting a point, hitting a point, slapping a verse on it, hitting a point, slapping a verse on it. But I felt like we needed to do that uh, to some degree because these are biblical truths that have been, God's laid on my heart. But now in Psalm 62, I want you to read with me, if you will, because this is the heart Uh, the center of what I want to say this morning. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, and I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. My soul wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is our refuge, is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up, they are... All t- they're together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is thine, O Lord. For you recompense a man according to his work. And so we should restrain integrity and find this fifth one, we see the response of maturity. Far too often, uh, we have an intellectual awareness, kind of, uh, but a practical ignorance of what it means to trust God in everyday life. I mean, we know as Christians we're supposed to trust God. But particularly when a crisis comes, then we, we kind of throw that out the window. We really don't know what it's like on a practical level. We know it intellectually, but not practically. And our immediate response to a crisis is to trust ourselves. We get agitated. We get anxious. We get angry. But David has something to say to us. And we will trust ourselves until the tragedy or the difficulty or adversity becomes so overwhelming that we realize our own need to rely on God. Like we, you know, we're just stubborn people, right? It's like, I'm not going to, I'm going to trust myself until I can't trust myself. And then, uh, and, but you know, so God is, okay, that's where you're going to be. I'll put you in a spot where you don't have a choice. Or it doesn't seem like you have a choice. There are three ways that I see in this text, Psalm 62, that David inspires us to trust God only, trust God only 
especially in the face of adversity. First of all, through his example in verses 1 through 7. Literally, the Hebrew reads, only in God, the true God, is my soul silent. Only in God. Only, only, only. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, only is in the emphatic position so that we don't miss the point. God alone is to be our trust. He is exclusive and unshakable. He is to be our exclusive and unshakable source of rest. The NIV NIV translates it rest or the peace in our soul. Notice he says at the end of verse 1, shall not, not, not greatly shaken. I'm not greatly shaken. Not greatly shaken. So what is this peace of God? This rest in our soul, this silence before God. The peace of God is a subjective feeling of tranquility. Subjective feeling. You know, it's an internal sense of rest that, becomes, that comes to us when there's no enemy. Like, okay, I have no enemies, so I'm at peace. Or, as in the case that we've been experiencing, it's rest that comes from absolute confidence in God's protection, His provision, and His purpose in the face of suffering. I'm at peace. It's the peace of God which Jesus spoke about in, in, in John 16, 33. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 14, 27. It's the peace of God that comes because we have confidence in God. But the peace of God, that subjective tranquility, is predicated upon peace with God, which is an objective reality. Okay? The peace of God it is, comes from the peace with God that comes to us through our personal faith or a trust in the death burial and resurrection of Christ whereby we have been pardoned from our sin and brought into right relationship with God so that we're no longer at enmity with God, no longer at enmity with each other and we are in right relationship with Him. Therefore having been justified by faith I have peace with God Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. We deserve His wrath because of what Christ did on the cross and took the payment for us, if we put our trust in that as appropriation for us, then we have peace with God. He's no longer our enemy. We are His friend. Friend with God. We have peace with God. We can know the peace of God. So I ask you this morning, do you have peace with God? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and His death and that alone is the payment for your sins because you deserve God's wrath and condemnation in hell but by the mercy and grace of God He sent His Son Jesus who died on the cross so that you and I could put our trust and faith in Him and His death. He took the place that we deserve because the wrath of God requires a punishment on sin. The holiness of God requires the payment. The justice of God requires the payment but the love of God provided it the person and work of Jesus so that you and I don't have to suffer what we deserve. He did it in our place. And when I know the peace with, have peace with God, I can know the peace of God. And David's trust was not in a vacuum. You see it in verses 3 and 4. How long will you uh, assail a man? You see, 
what he was experiencing, the tranquility that he had, was the result of his trust in God only in the face of adversity. He was assaulted by brutal, fickle, hypocritical, and untruthful people bent on his taking his life. And we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel, so we saw that. David was betrayed, he was you know, ratted out, he was uh, assaulted and assailed and all this stuff. He knew what it was like. David did not trust in his own military might. He didn't trust in his family. He didn't trust in his own abilities. He was a soldier, right? He took out Goliath. He's no problem. I take out a few Philistines, not a deal. No, he didn't trust, trust in God only. In his desperation, he depended on God and not himself. What about you? What about me? He accentuated the reality and intensity of his trust by reiterating it in verses 5 and 6. Notice he says, my soul wait in silence. Same as verse 1. For God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. Too often, our response to adversity, to opposition, to injustice, and difficulty is we're anxious, agitated, and angry. Not silence. In our soul. Like, I'm at rest with that? I'm good with that? Wait, no, I'm not. Too often. Whether it's Creekside Church in the midst of whatever we're going on right now, this situation, or it's individual, you as an individual believer. If you're wrongly accused, you're lied about, you're rejected by your peers. You're maligned by your classmates, made fun of, and outed, canceled, whatever the, you know, unfriended. Oh, they defriended me on Facebook. You know? And unjustly treated, God calls us to entrust our lives fully to Him. And He gave us the example in the person and the work of Jesus, 2 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, verse 23. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, and uh, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh, for this finds favor. If For the sake of conscience towards God, a person endures grief when suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer patiently, endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called, this is it, you've been called for this purpose. Because Christ also suffered for you, uh, leaving an example so that you would follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was uh, any deceit found in his mouth, and while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When we do what's right, and we suffer for it, and we take it patiently, Entrusting ourselves to him who judges righteously, that's what finds favor with God. Not when I shake my fist and pound the ground and, and, and get my pound of flesh. We'll likely have more opportunities to follow Jesus' example as we move forward as individuals and as a church. And we can do so only in the power of Christ in us. This is not just like suck it up and, and, you know, follow Jesus. 
He's given us the Spirit in our lives as believers to walk this walk. Because what this requires is not possible humanly. I don't know if you've heard the report, but uh, uh, there's a, a group from Oxford students in Oxford, England. Uh, they've, they've raided their local churches on, uh, based on how safe they are for uh, gay and transgender students, okay, Christians. Uh, the, students, uh, the, the students awarded scores ranking 1 to 5 uh, to rank the LGBTQ plus inclusivity of churches in Oxford. So there's a ranking, you know, based upon how, uh, how accepting you are of, of, of that lifestyle. And I, re- I say this because this is just another example of how Christians and believers in churches, based upon our understanding of what the Bible says constitutes uh, marriage and and family and these kinds of things you know it's under assault and we be rated if we hold to what the scripture says so he did it through his example then he did it through david did through his exhortation notice he moves from his example in verses one through seven uh, to an exhortation to us to trust in the lord verse eight trust in him at all times O people And he makes two points here. First, the sanity of trusting in God only uh, is seen, first of all, in his command. And notice he says, trusting him at all times. (laughs) Well, I, you know, it's not a problem. You know, things are going well, and, you know, I got a little extra money in the bank, and, uh, you know, family's all good, everybody's healthy, uh, nobody's, uh, you know, coming into the church and and saying, why are you preaching on this, or uh, sending scathing emails or anything. It's like, everything's good, I can trust God. But... At all times is a different deal. And notice he doesn't just, he says, pouring out your heart to God. This is verse 8. I'm not, it's in there. One of the things we've learned in this thing is, look, trusting God means pouring your heart out to God. It involves prayer. And we pray. We pray not just for the relief from adversity, but for the redemption of our adversaries. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully abuse you. That's not easy. It's not possible apart from Christ. And so we pray and we pour out our heart and we, we, we ask God to do it. Then we live in confidence that God is going to take care of it. We refuse to seek some other source of safety or sufficiency in the face of adversity. It's trusting in God only. Brock Purdy was a... a Star quarterback at, the, at Iowa State University. Now he plays for the San Francisco 49ers. And one of the games at the end of the season during the playoff game, he uh, tore a, a tendon or ligament in his, uh, his elbow. It may not be the right. He, he messed up his elbow, his throwing elbow. Okay, Season-ending injury. And Brock Purdy, as an outspoken believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, had this to say in July as he was preparing to come back, you know, making his, his comeback this season. He said this, no, God has me where he needs me. And how can I look around and be thankful for where he has me and just have that steadfastness and peace and love, obviously, that he provides and stay in that? That's his question. How can I just, you know, stay in that? How can I just accept that this is where God has me and this is what I want to do? And it's what God provides him. This is for us, folks, at all times. God has me where he wants me. No, well, God, I don't really like where you have me. 
but he has us where he wants us. And in the middle of it, we should be steadfast and faithful and loving, which he provides for us so that we can be an example to those around us and trust in him only. Why trust in God only? He says, God is our refuge. Everything else is vanity. Everything else is, is, and that's the next point, right? So the sanity of trusting in God only, but then there's the vanity of trusting in anyone or anything besides God. We don't trust in people, verse, verse 9. Men of low degree are only vanity. But you say, well, that's pretty discriminatory. No, he's an equal opportunity critic because he says those, are not only the insignificant are they vain, but the important well, they're no better. They, and the important men are a lie. They're lighter than a feather. Now you have a scale, right? And so they go up like this. Well, the scale is the weight takes them down. And in the Old Testament, the, the, the imagery is this. If you were heavy, you were important. Because only, I'll just say it, fat people could eat. And they had somehow importance in the, in the culture, right? Because they were heavy. And then the heaviness translated into significance and importance. They were people of influence. And David says the low people, the insignificant, they're vanity. The, the, the important people in their own eyes, they're, weight, they're light. They, they, they're no significance. So trusting in them is what? Futile. You don't trust in people. One of the great things is one of, one of our Liberian brothers over in Liberia who's been directly impacted by this. You know what this Liberian brother said? He says, one thing he's learning is we need to keep our eyes on the Lord and not on people. Because people fail us. Keep your eyes on the Lord and not on people. We don't trust in the abuse of power. That's the next thing he says in verse 10. The abuse of power, which is oppression and the acquisition of riches. And you use the oppression to gain the riches, which he says, I think, equates it with robbery. He's just basically saying, you don't trust in the, the oppressive power to gain riches, and then you don't trust in the riches once you've gained them. And Solomon wisely told us in Proverbs uh, 23, 4, and 5, don't weary yourself to gain riches. Uh, cease from your consideration of it. For when, uh, you, when, wealth, when you acquire wealth, it will sprout wings like an eagle and fly away. It's not a place to put our heart, our trust in. Humility and, oh, so how do we do this? How do we not trust in people? How do we not trust in riches and power? Well, humility and generosity. <laughs> if I'm humble and not trying to elevate other people, and if I'm generous, then uh, if I get money and I give it away, then it's hard to, hard to trust that much in it because I realize I don't, I'm, I'm not that dependent upon it. And then finally, it's not through his example, not just through his exhortation, but through David's explanation in verses 11 and 12, he teaches us to trust only in God. Notice he says, once, twice I have heard. This is the Old Testament equivalent of verily, verily, I say unto you. You can take this one to the bank. You can guarantee that what I'm about to say is true. And David shares two reasons for confidence in God. And the first one is that God is powerful. And I say God is powerful, but that kind of underestimates it because you notice how the text says it. Once I have spoken, twice I have heard that power belongs to God. Not some power, not a little bit of power, but all power. 
power. He owns it. I own the power, God says. And David says it through him. I own it. All power belongs. So we can trust in him. And secondly, God is loyal. Verse 12 says this. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord. He possesses loving kindness, which is loyal love. And if God is all-powerful and all-loving, then whatever is happening is in his control, and we can rest in the fact that he loves us enough that he'll take us through it. We can trust our God fully in adversity because love for us controls all he does. There's one final perspective that I've come to that I want to share and that is that we seize the real opportunity in Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 it's it's opportunity for God's glory Philippians Paul says this according to my earnest expectation and hope that I may not be put to shame in anything but that Christ may now even as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death don't worry it's not on screen Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, that Christ may now even as always be exalted in my body. This is the the thing. Christ is exalted if we endure the suffering patiently, if we trust God fully, if we exercise forgiveness, if we extend mercy. If we live as Jesus' people, then God is glorified. And people see the reality of Jesus in the midst of a messed up world, even though we're faulty and frail people who fail. And we can still point people to the cross of Calvary. And there's opportunity for greater unity. And I'm not going to read it, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which we talked about at length when we went through the book of Ephesians, it says we pray for the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Despite the tremendous downside, because this whole thing has a potential to to bring all kinds of division and faction and friction and and all kinds of division within the body of Christ, but there's a tremendous upside for unity in the body of Christ. Tremendous opportunity. As our elder team and as the congregation um, pray together, as we worship together, as we serve together, desperately reliant on God in this challenging time, it fosters unity within the body of Christ. We're in this together. As the body of Christ, we're working together. And it's not just this local body. It is the universal body of Christ. We're we're in this together. We're going to celebrate in heaven someday. We should better try to get along here. You know? Because if we don't, it's going to, Jesus is going to go, dude, what are you doing? You know, you had this problem on earth. What, what, you know, now everything's good. Should have been there. You see, Christ's example of entrusting, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Can we entrust ourselves to him? His example of doing that came at a great price. His life resulted in a great prize. The life of all who would put their faith and their trust in him eternally. And so when we, we take bread and we take juice, We remember that sacrifice. We remember the price that was paid. We remember the prize that was gained for all of us. And we're able, I think, in that to thank God for the new life we have and trust God to live victoriously in this life as we, and confidently, as we endure the present suffering and anticipate future salvation. I invite you, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to do just that, to thank God 
for the new life you have in Christ and to trust him and the power of the risen Christ to help you live victoriously in the midst of all this mess. Not just our mess, but the mess that we live in as, as fallen people. But ask you to examine your heart. You're free to take the elements, the bread and the cup, but ask you to examine your heart and get your heart right with God before you take these elements. There's a table at the back and a table at the front. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your loving kindness and your mercy. I thank you for the patience of these people who've endured my ramblings and my heart passion as I seek to make and process the challenges before us, praying that we would do so together for your glory and the gain of your kingdom praying that people's hearts and minds would be touched, that they might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ as we incarnate it before them, that they would repent of their sins and turn and trust in Jesus, that those of us who know you would submit to you, Holy Spirit, and work to bring light and life to all we come in contact with. We pray in Christ's name.